TNDC Podcast Season 2, Episode 1. And allowing Cove, Muma, and me to sit in front of a live audience with guests Bill Crystal, founder and editor-at-large of the Weekly Standard, and Henry Olson, senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Political effects of the Trump administration and how that's going to potentially shape the future of politics in the United States going forward. That polarization beyond just this shift in you know, what, what the parties look like. What's happening right now is something that tends to happen only once every few decades, which is that you're seeing a realignment between party coalitions. And then we had the amazing spectacle for all the talk about youth and social media and technology and everything's changing and all this. We had the oldest pair ever to run for president, not individually, but together. States, you cannot run as an anti-Trump Republican and win a Republican nomination, I think. And that's why 2018 is a tough year for sort of anti-Trump or never-Trump Republicans. How do you think what we're seeing with turnout in the last year, especially in some of the kind of governor races or special elections, how is that changing that picture? And especially, how does that play out in 2020? What does Trump have to do before the stalemate occurs where he can't do anything in the second, second half of his term? What, what are the odds, do you think, of like Warren or Sanders, let's just use them as the stand-ins for the left, being the nominee in 2020 as opposed to a more moderate governor or? My dad would shoot me if I didn't bring up the fact that, like, if you're conservative, at what point do you forget about who's wearing the suit and vote for the agenda? I won't give up, no, I won't give in till I reach the end and then I'll start again. No, I won't be. So this is a, a unique panel because uh, Adam Smith Society has graciously allowed us to partner, us being TNDC podcast, as we call it, uh, so this is TND Pod TNDC Podcast Season 2, Episode 1. <laughs> and, Backed uh, by popular demand, is that right? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and so Manhattan Institute, or more specifically the Adam Smith Society, a project within the Manhattan Institute has taken a, a for, and to use Trump's word, a huge risk <laughs> in allowing Cove, Muma, and me to sit in front of a live audience with guests Bill Crystal, founder and editor-at-large of the Weekly Standard, and Henry Olson, senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, to discuss what we've been calling all afternoon the theme running through this conference, uh, Trump One Year In. Our mission on TNDC to promote discussion and debate around public policy and effects on business aligns very well with Adam Smith's mission to promote discussion and debate around the benefits of free markets and capitalism. So you can see I kind of borrowed a few of those words. Uh, we've kind of found our niche in connecting millennials with public policymakers and people of influence, and you two certainly fit the bill for, excuse the pun. Uh, so thank you both for being here. And where we would like to go with this conversation is discussing the future politics and electoral effects of Trump's presidency followed by the efficacy of his agenda. So does that sound good to everyone? Yeah. Cool. And I'll let Cove take it away here. Okay, so yeah, thanks very much for, for joining us here in, uh, here in Durham today. I really want, well, we've talked already today a lot about, oh, and my mic just came on. Um, talked a lot today about kind of policy, and we've had the, the tax forum and, and panel, we've had a, a healthcare panel as well today. So we wanted to kind of bring it full circle and talk more about the political effects of the Trump administration and how that's going to potentially shape 
the future of politics in the United States going forward. And I want to take it off with kind of following on what you, what you were talking about, Bill, in, um, in your keynote, 45% of Republicans now seem to be more radical, 45% of Democrats now seem to be more radical in supporting these kind of insurgent candidates. And you know, are we seeing a fundamental demographic change in the American electorate? And I know, um, Bill, you know, you're talking about you kind of the, the current situation bringing out your inner liberal. <laughs> uh, Henry, you were talking, you know, you've written a book recently about blue collar conservatism and kind of the, the rise of, of kind of working class Republicans. Are we seeing educated affluent voters becoming more liberal, becoming more Democrat, whereas they might have been more Republican in the past, and working class voters becoming more Republican, becoming, becoming more, more kind of uh, more right leaning? And is that a shift that is fundamental and, and kind of something that's going to really change the way Americans elect their, their public leaders going forward? Well, uh, first, what we're seeing is just a reflection of what's going on worldwide, is that I, wrote a P I write for an English uh, publication called Unheard, U-N-H-E-R-D, and if you take a look at what's going on in other countries, you're seeing virtually the same thing, is that working class voters are becoming radicalized around issues of globalization and migration, the center left is collapsing to be replaced by the far left, and the center right traditional business class often find themselves more in agreement on the new issues with their old center left colleagues. Um, so the problem is, is if you're simply trading blocks of voters in a bipartite system, you're changing the composition of the coalitions, but you're not changing the balance. And that's really the question, is can one party put together the, uh, something that uh, gives them an upper hand in the 25-year 50-50 battle that we've had in this country? Um, if all you do is, if all the Republicans do is trade away suburbanites for blue-collar voters, they've gained nothing. But if all the Democrats do is trade away their blue-collar voters for suburbanites, they too have gained nothing. And the real political challenge is to see who can break that in a way so that they get a little bit of both. And as Bill pointed out, in the 2016 race, the non-Trump candidates were able to do both. They were able to keep the suburbanites and attract most of the blue-collar voters. And the question is, can a more Trump-like Republican Party without a lot of his personal negatives be able to be constituted under a Tom Cotton or a Marco Rubio or a Nikki Haley or somebody to make that larger coalition real? And if that happens, that would change America for decades. How much do you think, I just, uh, how much does the age issue make it not an even trade? That is, how much is the tilt towards, uh, are you trading, if you're trading older working class voters for younger, so to speak, upper middle class voters, uh, isn't there, a, I mean, I don't believe demography is destiny, we've discussed this many times, but there is a demographic advantage for the Democrats in that trade, no? I mean, just because older voters die off and younger voters yeah. vote more. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the problems with the Democrats is that that's the direction that they go in. First of all, by the time the older voters actually die off, you're talking about the Republican Party winning the presidency four times in a row, because where those voters are living are in safe red or safe blue states. Uh, you can, if nothing changes from 2016, um, as far as who Trump got and who uh, the Clintons got, which is to say that a lot of those people who have, didn't like Trump as Republicans now become Democrats, Trump still wins re-election. If the same is true in 2024, his successor wins re-election. And that's because the upper Midwest and the rural areas of the South and the Midwest are not changing fast enough 
that the Democratic gain in popular vote would translate to electoral votes. So they can do that, but they will, unless they make a foray back into the places that they lost, they will lose the presidency until 2032. I would be curious to hear your, your thoughts on that polarization beyond just this shift in you know, what, what the parties look like. To me, you look at that polarization and the impact that it has on, on the electorate and on politics in general, and, and in my view, it's a, it's a pretty negative impact. And I think that polarization ultimately leads to candidates like a Bernie Sanders or like a Donald Trump, who, I, in my opinion, a large majority of the millennial electorate does not identify with particularly strongly, and it also leads to this world of negative partisanship that we live in now where Republicans are voting for Donald Trump because they don't want to vote for Hillary Clinton, and Democrats are voting for Hillary Clinton because they don't want to vote for Donald Trump. And so that, to me, is a world where, sure, nobody's really gained anything in this change, but we're in a world that's worse off, in my view, where the discourse is less, where the candidates are more polarized, and in my opinion, we're in a worse place. I'd be curious for your commentary and, on that. And to, to paint a visual of that, I, I was on the phone timely today. Uh, we interviewed Doug Robinson, who's a candidate for governor in, in Colorado, uh, my home state, so I got to give a shout out to Colorado. Um, but he was telling me that he he's on a debate tomorrow. Four candidates from both sides of the aisle are uh, lined up uh, alphabetical order by last name, and he's sitting in between Jared Polis and Tom Tancredo. And so you get, the, you get the visual of this guy who's a business guy, he's never run for office in his life. Um, and, but that, that is the visual of what you're talking about right now. It's the polarization of a t Tancredo who's run, we were talking before this, I mean, how many times has Tancredo run in Colorado? And Jared Polis, who's far left. And, and so the ideal candidate, I think, is you have, these, you, you have the, the centrist or the moderate that can give and take um, you know, in policy, but they can't get elected because the primaries are just so polarizing. I mean, no, that's, that's certainly a, an issue. Um, eventually, um, what happens, what's happening right now is something that tends to happen only once every few decades, which is that you're seeing a realignment between party coalitions. And when that happens, the debate is intense and polarizing because people are trying to establish what the new order is going to be. And once you've established that, then one side has to kind of cotton to the other side's agenda and interpret it differently. That's basically what Clintonism was after Reagan successfully realigned uh, American politics. Um, one party has to win three successive elections fought on roughly the same issues, and then they establish a new, uh, a new uh, majority. Um, if that doesn't happen, party politics will simply become more polarized and more radical, and you may eventually have the breakdown of the bipartite system. And one of the, I just wrote a piece that was posted an hour ago on American greatness, where you go through 75 years of partisan identification. Um, and we now have close to a majority of people who do not identify with either party. They may lean one way or another, but they would prefer another choice. And that suggests the dam, the pressure behind the dam beginning to build up to the point where unless one side or the other creates that majority, it will break. And that's what happened in France last year, is that the, uh, the left and the right had not been able to deal with the social and economic problems, and a candidate, President Macron, uh, put together reformists of the center-right, center and center-left, and created an entirely new political party. 
uh, that could happen here, but it would require a new political party of people from the center-right, the center and the center-left, agreeing to put something together that takes from both but pushes the extremes out. Barring that, uh, you'll just see increasing polarization and vituperation. In, in but I would say just on that, yeah, I, I think there's more... In 2016, I was involved in efforts to try to get an independent candidate to run against uh, <laughs> both Trump and Clinton, and they all failed. And I saw some of the obstacles in our two-party system with its own characteristics, first past the post and electoral college and all kinds of things, con uh, House, that, not a parliamentary system, that I think makes it harder for the Macron uh, alternative to succeed here, but not impossible. And I would say it is less unlikely now than it has been for a long time. I mean, if you were betting, you would bet that we'll have a Republican-Democratic race that looks semi-traditional you know, in 2020 with minor third and fourth parties. But I think there's, I don't know, I'm making this up, but you know, a 15% chance that you actually have an independent candidate of the center who has an actual chance to win electoral votes and maybe win. Uh, whereas in the past, I would have said there's a 2% you know, chance or something. So I think there could be a big moment where the party system because of the pressure it's under, and because some of the things have changed, the technology has changed, social media, campaign finance, you could, it's not as impossible to imagine an independent candidate, especially if he or she had name ID or money or both, or could raise money quickly, uh, getting on all the ballots. And, and the party affiliation, uh, as Henry said, is less than it was, and especially among younger voters. I mean, so you put that all together, and you might get a perfect storm where Two parties that have dominated for over a century, really for a century and a half, uh, don't suddenly dominate. Now, whether that independent candidate would then be a one-off or whether you could actually imagine a new party is a whole other set of questions. We're not set up quite, in a, you know, you'd st the independent would win and there'd still be presumably, you know, 51 Republicans and 49 Democrats in the Senate. They're not going to be like a bunch, I don't think, of independent senators necessarily. So how does that then govern? How does it shake out? It could be a fa fascinating, maybe hopeful maybe challenging moment. Final point, just millennials, since I think you mentioned yeah. them. I mean, I mean, I really feel bad for them. I'm sort of pro-millennial, unlike most of my kind of arts, uh, because I'm so anti-baby boomer that I figure you guys will be, <laughs> you guys will be, can't be worse than we were, you know, and all in. Um, and I, I thought we had uh, Clinton, Bush, Obama, all three baby boomers, 24 years of baby boomer, uninterrupted hegemony. And I remember writing something in 2015, it's like, finally, we'll get rid of them, you know, and at least on the Republican side, I mean, Hillary is a baby boomer, but on the Republican side, we'll get a Rubio or even a Cruz or a uh, Walker, they're all too young, you know, they're all post-baby boomer. Um, and instead, we had the amazing spectacle for all the talk about youth and social media and technology and everything's changing and all this. We had the oldest pair ever to run for president, not individually, but together, you know. Um, it's like the baby boomers just will not go away. You know, it's like you think they were finally leaving and then it's Trump and Hillary. It's like ridiculous, you know. Yeah. But maybe you guys could finally um, kick the baby boomers out and get some young, get some young. I think it's happening at the congressional level. I'm struck this year, and this cheers me up actually, it's on both the Democratic and the Republican side. I thought that politics has become so unpleasant, and especially on the Republican side, the pressures to run if you don't really like Trump, how do you run as a, you know, in a context where you have to take a side on Trump, would deter good people from running. There's some of that going on, but I am struck how many impressive people, especially young people, some post 9-11 vets, a lot of younger women actually, this, because of what's happened in the last year or two maybe there, uh, are running for office for Congress uh, and for Senate. We'll see what happens. These are often their multi-candidate primaries and open seats, and we'll see if you know what happens in both parties. But 
that, that part, I think when, when, but beneath Trump, there may be some hopeful things happening in the, in the political system. And so I'd be, I'd be curious to follow on with that because we, we posed the same question to uh, Doug in episode five and we said, we looked at the Virginia off-cycle election. Ed Gillespie aligned himself with Trump late in the game. Uh, it looked like an act of desperation. They did those robo conferences. And, and my question would be, uh, from your perspective, would you advise candidates looking to get through the primaries to align themselves with Trump early on or not at all? Or Doug's response was very idealistic, where you just got to be who you are, and, and you know, hopefully that wins. But it all depends on the race and the place that you are. And look, generally, generally, it's not a good idea to oppose the sitting president of your own party. And the fact is, whether people might prefer to have another person, he's getting 83% name ID or approval among Republicans. Uh, but a lot of it also depends. You can win a primary and lose a general. If I were running in a highly suburban state uh, where the, you know, Colorado is a place where it's going to be determined by uh, the margin of the Democrat in the Denver suburbs. If you can narrow it, you can win. Uh, it's not a good idea to, if you win the primary by allocating your, by assigning, aligning yourself with Trump in Colorado, you're going to lose a general election. So you should probably take the chance not to do it in Colorado. If I was running in North Carolina, or I was running uh, in uh, Tennessee, like Marsha Blackburn, heck yes, I would do it. I mean, I've talked to quite a lot of, uh, I'd say, somewhat anti-Trump candidates, potential candidates, or even incumbents. And I, I think in most districts, I agree that they're, they're, of course, quite different from each other. And in most states, you cannot run as an anti-Trump Republican and win a Republican nomination, unless maybe you're extremely you know, popular and well-ensconced incumbent, and even there, Jeff Flake was going to lose, you know, was losing in Arizona by 25 points, and he's been a very successful politician in Arizona for the House and for the Senate. And Corker, I don't think he was really scared out of the race the way Trump said in Tennessee, but I think he was worried about a Trump challenger. Um, and we'll see what happens in some of these other states. So, yeah, it's just most Republicans at this point, if they don't, they don't love Trump maybe, but they don't want a guy, someone to explicitly be anti-Trump. And you know, they're, the Democrats are going to want to stay anti-Trump party anyway. So you're sort of betwixt and between. If you elect me as to Congress, I'm Republican. I'm going to caucus with the Republicans. So I'm going to be part of a majority, maybe, that will mostly approve Trump's nominees and mostly approve similar policies. But I'm anti-Trump. I mean, that actually is would be what I like. If I were running, that's what I would have to say. But for the voter, it's like, hey, look, I want either. I mean, if I'm pro-Trump, I want someone who's going to be pro-Trump. And if I'm anti-Trump, I just want a Democrat because I want someone to check. Trump and McConnell and Ryan and have investigations and as long as the Republicans control how the House and the Senate they won't. So I mean it, it is a very I think it's it would be an admirable thing for some people to do and some will do it. But it's a tough it's a tough line to straddle I think. And that's why 2018 is a tough year for sort of anti-Trump or never Trump Republicans. It's just practically electorally it's very hard to see how you get much of a manifestation of that. So stay, staying with kind of Elections coming up and, and, and the, the difficulties of being like a pro, uh, anti-Trump or, a, or even a, you know, a pro-Trump Republican who, who then wins a nomination in a in a kind of marginal state. How do you think what we're seeing with turnout in the last year, especially in some of the kind of the governor races or special elections, how is that changing that picture? And especially, how does that play out in 2020? You know. Is, is the, the Trump effect energizing turnout from the left far more than it is encouraging his kind of base that elected him in 2016 to come back and re-elect 
Trump candidates in, in, in general elections? Oh, yeah, I, you know, 2017 was a limited, you know, we have a limited set of data. Uh, if there's one place that is a ground zero of never Trumpism, it's going to be Northern Virginia and mm -hmm. perhaps Southern Maryland. So we can draw too many lessons from that, but the fact is turnout has been up among Democrats in special elections across the board. On the other hand, when it's seriously contested, like the Georgia seat, at, uh, Georgia six in Atlanta, or Montana's, uh, and the Republican Party puts enough money in, Republican turnout comes up so that the advantage is not as great as perhaps it was in the 2017 governor's race. Um, and the Republicans need to energize two sets of people. They need to energize Republican partisans, but they also need to energize the Democrats who switched over. You know, that's a lot of these seats in the Midwest, particularly governor's seats, um, uh, the key constituency is the Obama-Trump voter who also supported Pat Toomey. You know, or you know, if you're gonna try and win Ohio's Senate race against Sherrod Brown, you have to win those people and you have to get Republicans uh, uh, enthusiastic about it, and uh, that's going to be finding how to do both simultaneously is a challenge, uh, but I think it means doing more like what Trump and McConnell seem to be agreeing on, which is, say, focusing on things like infrastructure and trade and immigration than on doing things like what Ryan wants to do, which is to focus on balancing the budget. But I would also say, I mean, some of this is what, what could be too Trump-obsessed. I mean, I'm, I'm the last person who should say that. But the, uh, if you, you could make a lot of money betting that a, when a party wins the presidency and controls both houses of Congress, they're going to lose a lot of seats in the first off-year election. Voters tend to want to check a one-party government. They did it in 94 after President Obama and the Democrats controlled Congress. They didn't do it in 2002, but that's, I think, 9-11 made that a very unusual and special election. Uh, and they did it in 2010, obviously, after President Obama and, President, and the Democrats controlled, did I say Obama, Clinton before, and then Obama controlled Congress. And with Bush, they didn't do it in 02, and they just did it in 06 instead. So voters have a tendency to punish, or to punish is too strong, maybe, to want to check the party that's in power. So I do think just on the natural, in the natural course of events, this would be a rough year for, for Republicans. Uh, if you add some of the tensions that Henry was talking about, I think it looks pretty grim in the House. And again, that's one of the things to think about in the next few years. Everyone does tend to take too much in politics as in life in general, and like a static snapshot view of things. Stuff's going to happen. There will be a Mueller report. Either, it's fairly binary in my opinion, either he'll, discover, he'll claim, uh, argue that you know, there are possible impeachable offenses that Congress should look at with respect to Trump, I believe everyone else aside, but, or he'll say no. Well, that kind of changes things a lot, you know? I mean, it's a big, very different climate in September and October. If you're electing a Congress that may or may not impeach, that may or may not convict Trump, or if you're electing a Congress where the impeachment issue is kind of off the table, I mean, maybe a few rabble, you know, left-wing Democrats will still complain, but if Mueller says there's nothing there, it's, he's not going to get impeached. And then you're just having more of a normal policy debate on, you know, taxes and, and judges and all the normal issues. Uh, if there's a, so that's one huge like wild card that's sitting out there. Then in 2019, if the Democrats were in the House, I mean, I was in a government in the White House when the Democrats controlled both houses of Congress. People who have not been in that do not understand the difference. You have these you know, nice hearings with Republicans controlling committees and the Democrats get to ask five minutes of questions and they try to make your life miserable. And worst case, if you're a district court judge candidate nominee who's not prepared, you get embarrassed on national TV. And worst, worst case, you pull your nom the nomination gets pulled and that's it. It's a three-day story and stuff. You have serious committees doing oversight 
of a government with a hostile intent, which is what the Democrats would be doing in the House, it could, look, it could be unbelievable in 2019. Which incidentally, I would say, if you want the perfect scenario for a 2020 independent candidate, Trump, sort of unpopular, but aggressive and in charge of the Republican Party in 2019. Pelosi in charge of a radicalized and aggressive Democratic House in 2019. No compromise at all, bitter partisan fighting, screaming, yelling on both sides. That is a good atmosphere, I would say, for someone to say, businessmen or women, uh, military vets, uh, retired politicians, someone to say, okay, this is really ridiculous and we need to have a centrist independent candidate. So you could get the perfect storm in 2020. So if we operate under that foregone conclusion that Republicans lose lose Congress. Well, I say foregone. I I think, uh, I would say they're likely to lose the House, not certain. Sort of unlikely to lose the Senate just because of the playing field, but yeah, possible. The playing field is so. That's the thing is that there are five Senate Democrats that are up in states that Trump won by between 19 and 41 points. If you energize the Trump constituency, you should be able to pick up seats in the Senate. Now, doing that may cost you the House and it may cost you governorships, but the right. Senate, if it doesn't stay in Republican control, it's going to be a god awful night for the Republicans. So, if we operate under under Republicans losing, then. What does Trump have to do before the stalemate occurs where he can't do anything in the second, second half of his term? What does he have to achieve now until the midterm to you know, secure a second nomination or you know, even, even run again in 2020? I, mean, I would just say, I mean, that's mostly driven. Presidential re-elections are very different from like off-year congressional elections. Presidential re-elects ultimately are about the state of the country, the state of the economy, the state of the world. If he has a good economy and there are no obvious foreign policy crises and no massive, you know, Watergate-type scandals, um, he'll get renominated if he wants to be and is in good health and has a reasonable shot at getting reelected. Not a gimme. I mean, he ran. He, he, it was kind of a close call there in 2016. He kind of drew an inside straight, and you know, you could imagine him losing a close race as well as 21. But I, I think it, that's driven more by objective, just what the world looks like than by, does he pass this piece of legislation or that piece of legislation? What do you mean? No, I, I agree that um, I, I think it would be highly unlikely for Trump to lose a nomination absent something that suggests that he is either a traitor or committed impeachable offenses. I think it's highly unlikely he would choose not to run again unless the Mueller report basically was communicated to him to say it's the presidency or, or the Trump corporation, you get to choose. Um, uh, because the one thing he seems really afraid of, as opposed to dismissive of, he's dismissive of Russia. He seems to be afraid of people looking at his finances. Um, but you know, barring that, he'll run again. He'll win the re- he'll win the nomination. Um, and then the question is, uh, how do the people feel about the direction, the choices that are posed to them? You know, we had a 2020, 2012 election where virtually the entire Republican Party thought that it was a gimme. Um, I was as Bill knows, one of the naysayers on that. But um, um, what, when posed with a choice, do you want the direction that you are uncomfortable with or a direction that uh, Mitt Romney is proposing? The American people chose the direction they were uncomfortable with. Um, so we don't know what choice they will get in 2020. It's not simply going to be, do you want to reelect Donald Trump? It's going to be, do you want Donald Trump or this? And the Democrats in their progressive wing have a very high chance of giving a this that many people in the middle will go, Ugh. 
So that's, I think, a huge question. I'm struck that Republicans, conservatives, seem co- who want to be optimistic, seem confident that the Democrats are going to go off the rails and go left. And there does seem to be a lot of energy in that part of the party. On the other hand, I live in Virginia, where the more moderate Democrat won the nomination and Coast won a very easy, obviously, uh, general election victory. What, what are the odds, do you think, of like Warren or Sanders, let's just use them as the stand-ins for the left, being the nominee in 2020 as opposed to a more moderate governor? Or Rather than the odds, what I'll do is I'll just put out the equation, which is that for since uh, Democratic nominees were chosen by primaries starting in the early 1970s, the, uh, every race boils down to a three-legged stool, uh, leftists, centrists, and African-Americans. And with the exception of Barack Obama, the African-Americans have always sided with the centrist. That's what got Bill Clinton through. That's what um, uh, uh, has gotten every centrist Democrat through. Now, obviously, there are fewer white centrist Democrats than there used to be. Um, A progressive who knows how to talk with African-American voters, who keeps them from going 70-30 for the favorite of the centrists, uh, will have a very good chance of winning. But if they, which makes a Kamala Harris much more interesting to me to look at the progressive wings than like a Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, neither of whom, Bernie Sanders obviously failed to do that when he had a golden opportunity. Uh, So that's the equation. And I think the question is if somebody like a Kamala Harris uh, can energize uh, the left or Cory Booker can uh, energize the center, then I think they have an excellent chance of being the nominee simply because they are likely to add the African-American block to them. And you'd think generationally, if you're a Democrat, you just would like the contrast with Trump and not, I mean, Sanders, I don't think, I mean, he'll be 78 or something like that when the... I'm warned that really 71 is, or 72. Yeah, that's at least, but 78 is a little nuts, honestly. I mean, you know, so I don't think it'll be Sanders, but it is, and Biden will be 75. I mean, the three people who are right now the quote front runners in the polls are like, are all in their 70s, which is pretty crazy to run against the president in the 70s, which is why I do think I kind of agree the Harris, Booker, someone new, Gillibrand, you know, who who... Would, could catch on, I should think. Yeah, my guess is that it w- w- I'm not sure who it's going to be, but I don't think it'll be one of the older three. Okay, let's open up to questions from the audience, I think, now as well. So, yeah. Uh, you touched on um, kind of impeachment or potentially something coming out you know, down the road with this investigation that might show Trump to be maybe more a than we think. Um, if that were to be the case, do you think that the Republicans currently in in Congress would kind of turn on him, which seems challenging to do now as we talk about how challenging it is to run against, you know, not to say you're pro-Trump if you're, in, you're running in a state election, for instance, um, or do you think it will be more party over country, given how divided we are today? I think it very much depends on the but facts the actual facts and circumstances. We have to, because we're recording, oh. we have to read. So what, re- what happens if Mueller finds yeah. or claims to find some very serious offenses of some kind? Do the Republicans on the Hill stick with Trump or, or not? I think, um, I mean, A, probably if, if one has some sense, if the timing, if the, general, if the conventional wisdom about the timing of all this is right, you may get, not get to actual decisions until the next Congress, in which case you might not have a Republican House, at least, as we were discussing uh, anymore. But I do think it's very, it's very fact-dependent on sort of, at some point, yes, Republicans will be shocked and would start to desert some. But look, it's worth remembering Nixon in 74, on the day he resigned, had 50, support of 50%, was, had the approval of 50% of the Republican primary electorate. 
and, the, and we now remember, if you've read about Watergate, I actually remember it, it was in college. Uh, you know, I remember the leaders of both bodies, Hugh Scott, they were the minority, the Republicans obviously, Hugh Scott in the, in the Senate, I guess, and I can't remember who the House leader was, John Rhodes maybe in the House, and Barry Goldwater, the former nominee, all going to the White House dramatically to tell President Nixon, country first, you've got to step down. But that was late. That was like July of 1974. So people, there is a lot of party stickiness that's going to just st- it's going to stay longer than people like me would like, and probably longer than a lot of other people might like. I suspect. I don't think there'll be a moment where the report comes out and 24 hours later there's just a hemorrhaging of support, unless there's just a genuinely you know evident massive cover up or or lying or you know fraud mm-hmm. or something. And I think uh, going back to the Watergate example, it took months of public hearings that elaborated on the news stories that were unearthing certain facts. It required people with direct knowledge to um, choose either personal security from prosecution or country over party to say things that were embarrassing or legally problematic to the person who had just recently employed them. And ultimately required the tape that showed that Richard Nixon, in his own voice, was at worst uh, negligent and at best highly complicit in illegal actions. Um, Barring something like that, it is extremely difficult to see a party abandoning their own president and extremely difficult to see a party's voters abandoning their own president. So if we take the other extreme and look at the the DOJ investigation into Clinton, granted she's, she's not in office, but does that, if anything is uncovered there, does that hurt the Democratic Party? I don't know. I think that... I, yeah, she's not in office, and it's going to be hard to blame any particular person yeah, running so just, somewhere. Just kind of I mean, it muddies the waters, and maybe you get a little bit of both parties do it, and the whole Trump thing is unreasonable, and so I don't need to vote for a Democrat in my House district to check Trump. But I, I think the natural inclination, I live in Northern Virginia, so I'm in a, with a good Republican congresswoman, who I think is probably going to lose, uh, even though she's not pro-Trump, because she's just going to get, the problem is people are going to say, we need someone to actually check Trump, not just not be very pro-Trump. So unfortunately, one problem, if incidentally, if you're, a non, if you're an anti-Trump Republican or let's say you're a moderate Republican, the Republican Party post-November 18 is going to be more conservative and more Trumpy and more red state-based than it is today. The people who are going to lose are the people in swing districts like Barbara Comstock in Northern Virginia or Adam Kinzinger in Illinois or whatever. And the people who are the most, you know, Trumpy are going to be the ones who are in huge, you know, hugely Republican districts. So you'll have the irony that you could have an anti-Trump, something of an anti-Trump election and a more pro-Trump Republican Party left. Can I, can I ask a follow-up real quick? So, Henry, you, you mentioned Watergate when evaluating kind of what that might look like in terms of Mueller's yeah. findings. I'm, I'm curious at what point... You know, we have all of this political history. Everything that's happening right now bucks that political history. So you, know, you, you point to the three-legged stool, and you point to Watergate and how things have been handled in the past. At, at what point are we in a new world where you know, the millennial generation is more diverse than it's ever been and is becoming more active in politics and you know, things that are happening with technology and immigration? At what point do we throw out some of that conventional wisdom and say, you know, things might be different than they were in the 70s? Oh, um, I think what we're talking about with respect to the Watergate is just human nature, which is that 
partisans are partisans. Uh, they view facts through the lenses of their own self-interest, um, just like Democrats who would have condemned Bill Clinton's activities if they had been done by George H.W. Bush, found them not worthy of impeachment when it was done by their president. I think the same would happen with the Republican. What I'm trying to say with Watergate is it takes a lot to convince a party voters and party elected officials to abandon their president. It doesn't take innuendo. Innuendo and uh, small facts will convince somebody who's already predisposed to oppose. They will not convince the person who's predisposed to support. And I don't think that anything having to do with technology or changing voter sentiment changes um, that basic sense of human nature. I mean, I suppose, as far as your question is, implies a broader, you know, to some of the old rules get thrown out just because life is so different today. I'm, I'm, I'm generally a skeptic about that. I mean, generally, I'm sort of with Henry, you know, human nature is human nature. Every generation thinks, wow, it's really different now. Everything that we have, all of our parents, grandparents learned, all those rules of history, they all gone out the window. I mean, I remember being endlessly told when I was a kid in the 60s and 70s that, you know, technology's changing so much faster than it ever has. And, you know, your life is so different from your parents and grandparents and all this. And I would say objectively, that was actually not true. I mean, that there was a period from, I don't know, 1950 to probably 2000 or something like that, where for all the talk about how we're gonna have flying cars and all this stuff, the truth is, you know, people's houses are not that different than, my house is not that different from my parents and grandparents, the cars aren't that different, the highways aren't that different, the jobs aren't that, that different, really. The cop, this isn't that different, your classes you sit in, you know, for all the sort of techie stuff, are not really that different. Higher ed has been particularly resistant to change, I would say, but huge chunks of the country really have. I do think, though, that the internet and you know, per- mass computing and personal computing and mobile devices all together is a pretty big change. I-, I was sort of on the skeptical side of that 10 years ago, that I mean, it's not really gonna change things. I now think it is a very big change. And you combine that with the demographic changes and with some wild cards, you know, uh, I mean, changes in gender relations, I think that's a very big, I would say the climate on that could be very, very important politically over the next year. And you put all these things together, I kind of think it could be a moment where what you're implying happens. I mean, things do kind of blow up in a way that the models don't seem to expect. But it's also true that people always think things are going to change in ways that the models don't expect. The models usually are right, you know, so. I I would just argue that, you know, we had a president just elected who had never been a politician, never been involved in the military, something that had never happened, largely due to the media and his role on Twitter. And so I sort and, of agree with that, but I, I would also, I mean, I, I think I argued that, I, I agree with that. I mean, having said all that, at the end of the day, in the general election, 90% of Republicans voted for Trump, about 92 or something for Hillary Clinton. It's not that for all the talk. There were some key votes that changed in the Midwest, right. but most of the states are the same. Most of the voters are the same. People came home. You know, it, it, there is a lot of stickiness in people's attitudes. And again, you guys are young, and you're sort of in the middle of the change, and you've seen very big changes from when you were 15 years old to when you're 25 or 30 years old. That actually has been a time of very rapid change. But if you're 40 and from 40 to 55, yeah, the changes have affected you a little bit, but basically you have the same attitudes probably you had as a 55-year-old, the same attitudes you had as a 40-year-old. So the stickiness of the system shouldn't be underestimated. Well, I think the... The polarization was immense, obviously, in last election. My dad would shoot me if I didn't bring up the fact that, like, if you're conservative, at what point do you forget about who's wearing the suit and vote for the agenda? 
and, and you say, you know, basic conservative principles, lower taxes, smaller government, more military spending, and I mean, it, if we look Trump one year in, we're seeing that, right? Well, I mean, we've seen one of those three, if I can be honest. There's zero increase in military spending. He's for it, but he hasn't done it, and he has, certainly hasn't held the government uh, the CR hostage on it, and, and of course, partially and it's not smaller government. He's more intrusive. I mean, it's corporate. This is one of the things that most annoys me, since this is a Adam Smith society which believes in free markets. Trump can end up discrediting free markets because it's just crony corporatism now. You know, he's going to pat on the back every corp, every company that sucks. I mean, this ridiculous thing of announcing bonuses instead of actually investing the money. I mean, it's nice for people to get these bonuses, but that's not the point of the tax cuts. The point of the tax cuts is to actually, presumably, that was the economic argument that people made, right? Corporations here weren't competitive. So now they're going to be competitive by writing $1,000 checks to everyone. If you want to write $1,000 checks to everyone, just cut the payroll tax by 1%, something we have both been in favor of for a long time, and just help people. But I mean, so I'm, I, I think even the agenda thing, to be honest, I mean, of course, it's truth to it and constitution and limited government and all, but, uh, but even the agenda thing is now a, uh, a, a, a tribal, a, a, you know, a skins and shirts thing. I mean, it's now, it's still a, uh, it's, it's sort of a which team are you on thing. Like people think they're for the agenda, but they're only for the agenda because that's the team's agenda in some cases. I'm a little, and I sort of, this is a question that was asked, I think, in the previous session. I mean, I am a little freaked out by the degree to which people, it is now purely tribal partisanship. Maybe it's always been sort of. Of course, it's always been sort of. And there are times it's been quite a lot. But the degree now in which they're for this, so I'm going to believe this, or this is on Fox and that's on MSNBC, it's a little unnerving, honestly. And it is more than it was 20 years ago, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm 56, so I don't have... I, 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 my direct political memory goes back to the 70s. And I've just been thinking how it seems much more regular now that somebody in politics will make the exact opposite argument that they made just five years before. <laughs> and I don't remember that being the right. case in 73 or 75 or 78, you know, that somebody will say, I'm for a clean CR until it becomes in their interest to be against a clean CR. You know, I'm for shut down until I'm against it. It seems to be the default view nowadays. And it wasn't that way when we were. And what strikes me about that is, and people our age, I mean, reporters think it's a gotcha to show you know, Schumer on TV or Joe McConnell and, you know, a clip from five years ago where they're saying the opposite. Yeah. But it has no effect on anything. It's like, the, they don't care. I mean, they're for the opposite thing because the, the teams are, it's like being, you know, now we're going from east to west instead of west to east on the football field. So, of course, you're go, going the other direction. So, you know, but the actual substance of it is sort of disappears in, in the midst of the pure combat, I would say. Yeah. Question. Question. Kind of if Romney actually runs in Utah, so I'd say I'm going to talk to Romney about Mitt Romney. Questions about Mitt Romney running in the offside or in the midterm and out of Utah and what leadership challenges might. Yeah, I don't think you'll challenge McConnell for leader. I mean, I don't, I don't think there's enough anti-Trump senators to elect a leader necessarily, but um, and McConnell they probably will remain loyal to. Uh, I think Romney will be an interesting case, because I think he might be the one exception to the, what I said earlier, that 
it's very hard to run explicitly as sort of not a Trump supporter in a Republican. If you're Mitt Romney, the former presidential candidate, who's a revered figure in Utah, and you're running in Utah, I think you can get away with it. And I think he will not, I think he won't pull his punches. I mean, I don't think he's going to go out of his way to insult Trump, but I think he will not change his basic attitude, which means that if he gets elected, he does become a major figure. I don't know how many supporters he has, but still a major figure as a former presidential candidate in Washington, embodying something that not really, I guess no senior person really now does, which is the kind of non-Trump republicanism. Where it goes, I'm not sure. Bill, do you think that if he were to run and to win, and I suspect 85% chance that that's going to happen, um, how quickly does he become the subject of speculation for mounting a primary challenge to Trump in 2020? And does he at least entertain the possibility? Because if he doesn't shut it down as soon as it pops up, it'll be interpreted as entertaining. entertaining. And until he shuts it down, it becomes the topic of discussion. I think he'll entertain it. Mm -hmm. And I think really because I, I, I think he, I think he might prefer that someone else do it, someone younger do it, but I do think he genuinely believes, and I guess I sort of agree with him on this, that he doesn't want a Trumpy Republican party in the future, and he would like to see whether the party would think it's time for a change after three and a half years of Trump, and um, he wouldn't be the ideal vehicle for that because he's, in a way, he's been too anti-Trump. I think the actual candidate who could beat Trump, maybe beat Trump in 2020, or maybe get him to decide one term was enough or something, would actually have to be someone who you can't tell voters, you were wrong, I was right, which is what Romney running would be, right? I mean, it's like, you guys were ridiculous idiots to be suckered by Trump, and here I'm showing up to you know, save the day. It's much better to have a candidate who sort of is, look, I went along with Trump too, I was reluctant, but I did my best, and I maybe worked for him even, Nikki Haley, let's say, you know? I, just I did my best to make it work, but let's be honest, I mean, it's a little problematic, and I mean, we wouldn't say it this way, but I mean, this would be the vibe. It's a little problematic, and anyway, don't we need a change? I think the actual best hope for Republicans in 2020 would be kind of a, you gotta sort of accept that voters cast the votes they cast in 2016, but then say, do you really want four more years from age 75 to 79? Is that quite right? And maybe it's better just to like make a little change here. So in that respect, the Haley's, even the Tom Cotton's, people who kind of got along with Trump to some degree are probably better situated to be the, the non-Trump alternative, as much as I would like Mitt Romney, because I'm sort of where he is. But I, I just think it's going to be a hard sell for Republican primary voters. I'd love to see Nikki Haley run. Yeah. So when you're talking about uh, the 45% for Sanders, 45% for Trump, uh, a lot of that is not only the far left and the far right, but pragmatists versus ideologues. And we saw that with the Tea Party movement, and we see a lot of that on the left. Um, and that seems to be where all the energy is. To give us an uplifting view of the future, what would you say to the pragmatists? What's the hope for the pragmatists? who are the deal makers, who are the compromisers, who actually want to get something out of the party as opposed to just go back to their constituents and say, I didn't make any compromises, I fought for you. Got something uplifting to say? Yeah. Um, <laughs> what's been happening is uh, the center of both parties has, have been drifting away and uh, the old center-right Republican Party cannot win a Republican Party national primary anymore. Um, they now face one of two choices, uh, or one of three choices. One, 
compromise with Trumpian principles in a way so that they reintegrate themselves in a new center, uh, become the right wing of the Democratic Party, like the neoconservatives of your father's generation were, to um, enter into a new party and bolster an existing faction, kind of be reinforcements for the Clinton wing, um, or wait for the same thing to happen to their compatriots in the Democratic Party and then say, do we have a deal for you? Um, the, what keeps a centrist party from emerging is the fact that the center of the Democratic Party still nominally controls it. If the same thing happens to the center reasonable pragmatist of the Democratic Party, that you have 30 to 40% of Americans but who are minorities in both parties, that's when you see the opportunity for a new party because then they can see that there's a majority at hand. When it's only one side that's splitting off, you get the 18 to 20% scenario that I know Bill's polls were showing uh, in 2016, and that nobody wants to lose, everybody wants to win. So um, that's kind of uplifting because I do think that there is not a majority for ideological politics, but it has not yet found its electoral expression. And I think that's extremely well said. I think the other thing that is, is just, in general in life, it's not a bad idea to be contrarian, and when everyone agrees that everything is going in one direction, it's like the stock market, you know, when everyone agrees that everyone's going, everything's going in one direction, it, the systems do tend to react against that somehow or other in unpredictable ways often. And so just when everyone's agreed that you know, we can never have a compromise again, and we've just got two insanely polarized parties, it wouldn't totally surprise me to see actual, some actual deal-making and some inside-out coalitions on something like immigration or on other policy areas in the next year or two. So you, know, you could have a funny reversal here when just as everyone agrees on the polarization sort of scenario, uh, and people do, they, I mean, there are people who don't like it, and there are, and there are congressmen and senators individually who don't think they went to Washington either to rubber stamp leadership uh, or to just rebel pointlessly against leadership, but they'd actually like to like, pass some legislation. And they have ideas about some of this legislation. They've been very paralyzed, much more than I, for reasons I don't fully understand, I've got to say, in doing anything. The leadership is too strong, they control too much of the finance, I don't know why it is exactly. In the old days, people got elected to the House or the Senate, and they, this was there, they had a favorite issue or two, energy exploration, defense, you know, build up, whatever it was, you know, civil rights, you know, all kinds of issues. And they kind of went out and fought on those issues and they tried to build coalitions. They didn't really listen to leadership that much. I mean, they had to ultimately listen to leadership if they wanted to get, when they got down to passing a bill. But, you know, they would work with members of other parties and draft. Now it's like everyone just sits around Washington waiting for leadership to tell them how they're supposed to vote on some CR to keep the government open. It's a little pathetic, I, I think. And there's sort of a lack of entrepreneurship among actual politicians, maybe that'll change, or you know, maybe there'll be reaction against that system. I think we have time for one more question, if there otherwise. Great. Sure. The polarization, the splitting of the camps into four groups, you know, more fringe left, fringe right, and moderate left and moderate right, um, and the threatening of the primaries that could really hurt uh, Republicans in this case. Um, and then a lot of uh, one solution that's been offered is, you know, removing the closed primary and moving towards open primaries. That's just one solution. Do you see any other, like, sort of mechanical solution that it can to move? politicians more to the middle so that they can have maybe more of these um, entrepreneurial discussions and collaborations and votes and uh, initiatives. I'm not really a believer in a whole lot of mechanical changes. Um, 
but if there were going to be one mechanical change, I would suggest it would be abolish the primaries. Um, because what the primaries allow is losers to stay in a coalition because they have a share of power. When you don't have primaries, you're either in or you're out. And so if you had a Sanders takeover of the Democratic Party, um, the centrists would have to decide whether they want to accept a losing hand or whether they want to start a new party. We used to have many more party formations until the primaries were adopted because it lowers the cost of hostile takeover. And I think um, if you wanted to have one thing that could possibly push the center into political organization, it would be to abolish the primaries. Do you think the California-type jungle primary uh, system, nonpartisan primaries, or some of the ranked voting that, that people talk about, would that make a significant difference? The, the California top two primary has not really made any difference at all because um, it hasn't changed the ultimate bipartite. You know, again, it's a different way of keeping people within, but they had hoped that it would mean there would be moderates who would say, hey, it's, uh, and think strategically. You know, it's a red district, so therefore, if I'm a Democrat, what I need to do is get behind the moderate Republican and vice versa, with very few exceptions, like Rokana versus Mike Honda in a Silicon Valley district. That has not happened. Ranked voting could do that. That would be a way of keeping primaries, but also having um, encouragement to, uh, uh, for groups who would form new parties, which would give them leverage in, uh, you know, Australia does this, and minor parties use the leverage of directing their preferences, telling their voters how to rank the ballot uh, to extract policy concessions. So that would be one other one that could do it, but uh, the California primary I don't think has done anything like what its uh, backers wanted it to. And Kovi, you and I were talking about that in the UK, how the, it's just a nomination process by committee. Yeah, so obviously the UK political system works slightly differently and it's an, an nomination for um, for party candidates. I'm, I'm a approved Conservative Party candidate in the in the UK and that was a, a kind of a, a weekend selection event. You have to go and um, be interviewed by the party apparatus and get kind of rubber stamped by them and then you go to your constituency party to, to, to pick up a nomination, you have to kind of woo the committee members from that. Because um, party is all done very much behind closed doors, so it's less transparent, it's less democratic. What you do end up with is a, is a more kind of um, rubber-stamped, approved, kind of um, vetted uh, set of candidates. And you know, a Roy Moore would not get through that process. I mean, the flip side of the I'll find one last point, which you got. I mean, the virtue of the American system, for all that it's frustrating, is it does tend to absorb populist and rebellious and insurgent movements of right and left or just from anywhere into the parties, which on the whole, most political scientists have thought is a good thing. That is the tea party. You don't really want, I don't think, a system where you have established Republican Party, established Democratic Party, left-wing, extremely unhappy Socialist Party, right-wing, extremely unhappy Tea Party, Roy Moore, et cetera, party. It's a good thing that the Tea Party, I mean, I'd say most political scientists would have said this until very recently at least, gets absorbed into the Republican Party. You get your Rubios elected, you get your Cruises elected, you get Mike Lee elected, a lot of some of the crazy ones lose, and you end up with sort of the assimilation of protest movements into the parties. And the argument is that in Europe you don't have that. Britain's different because it's first past the post, and as you say, but like France or something, you end up getting a Le Pen party and a communist party, and that's not such a great thing. So they might win one of these days. So it's, it is a bit of a, there's some trade-off here, but I, I, 
Yeah, so I mean, the, the two-party system is something Americans have been very proud of, and political scientists have tended to praise until very recently when they decided, oh my God, it's too polarizing, and wouldn't it be good if we could have a little more flexibility in the parties, which I guess goes to show that... Yeah, when political scientists 60 years ago were saying that the parties look too much alike, and what we need is European-style parties. Right. Well, we will conclude there. But we, it's tradition on our podcast to raise a glass to men and women in our armed services for allowing us to discuss topics like this freely. So cheers to all of you here and overseas and in the room. Um, That concludes, and thank you too for for allowing us to to do this. Thank you, Adam Smith Society, for sponsoring TNDC Podcast and coming on. And uh, Chris and Liz are gonna give some concluding remarks and we're like the last thing in between, or maybe you're not. I saw your eyes go wide. Okay. Uh, We're the last thing between uh, happy hour, so uh, we'll wrap this up quickly. Thank you very much.